is the Storymobile podcast. We are a solar-powered moving art space that travels to events and through neighborhoods to collect your stories. The St. Paul Almanac book was created in 2005 and has since been released annually. The goal is to bring together the diverse community of St. Paul through literary arts. The Almanac is a meeting place for sharing stories and artwork of our community. This year, the St. Paul Almanac released their 11th volume, On a Collected Path. As part of a reading festival, authors have gathered at various venues throughout St. Paul to read their fabulous work. On Friday, June 2nd, Storymobile was at Golden's Lower Town to hear authors read their work from St. Paul Almanac on a Collected Path, Volume 11. Thanks for coming out tonight to Golden's Deli Lower Town. I'm really excited that we get, uh, get to do a second patio reading this year. It's one of the benefits of the summer of, of having summer reading series. And there's just enough breeze where I think it feels pretty good. So glad that we can enjoy the nice weather while we have it because uh, in Minnesota, you never know. Could be here one minute and gone the next. But the forecast is uh, clear skies, so um, I think we'll be good. Uh, this is the 11th reading of the 12 reading series. After this one, we have one more on the second Saturday of, um, of the, oh, it's June already. Yeah, of this month. Uh, June 17th, uh, 1 p.m. at Polly's Coffee Cove, and we'll be rounding out uh, the uh, festival there. So hopefully um, you guys can come check out that one as well. And uh, as I'm sure you may know, we are celebrating the release of the uh, 11th volume of the St. Paul Almanac. Uh, this is what it looks like. If you don't have one yet, they're selling them inside. Uh, you can get them from the counter. And uh, it's, it's a really gorgeous edition this year. And um, if you already have one, makes good gifts, you know, you can always get a couple more. So, and if they run out, I, I, got, I got some more, more ready here too, so. Um, well, without further ado, I think we, we'll get started. Is Chua Yang here? Chua Yang, okay, I think we're down one reader, but I think everyone else is here. Uh, so tonight, uh, reading, I'll just go through the lineup, uh, make sure everyone else is here and that I'm not missing anyone. Uh, tonight we have Amy Clark, Carla Hagen, uh, Isadora Gruyer, uh, Janet Hannafin, David Mendez, and Sean McLaughlin. Um, so those will be our readers for tonight. And uh, I, I think we'll get started. So our first reader of the, of the night is Amy Clark. Amy Clark is a lifelong resident of St. Paul, a mother, a teacher at St. Paul Claver, an artist and member of AZ Gallery, the host of Young Geniuses radio program, and an avid St. Paul Saints fan. Please welcome Amy. So I'm really glad to be outside because if we were inside, I wouldn't be able to read this. And so I brought my glasses just in case. But uh, my story is all about the Highland Pool. And this is, takes place in the 70s. And I love the Highland Pool. Uh, but it's not like what it was. And now it's become this beautiful place. But before it, but it was a place where everybody, all of our neighbors, everybody would go. And so it will start. Uh, Highland Pool by Amy Clark. On blistering, sweat-filled afternoons in St. Paul, my sisters and I would head to the Highland Pool. In the 70s, the Highland Pool is not the state-of-the-art aquatic center that it is today, but it could keep you cool and eat up the mindless hours of a summer day. 
We would scrounge to the couch for change, pick out the cat fur, <laughs> Kathy knows about the cat fur, uh, uh, pocket the jacks and marbles and pool the money. My sisters and I would choose the youngest to beg for a ride from dad, since he always fell for her cuteness. The beauty of us oldest girls were, was being held hostage by puberty and its companions, such as acne, braces, and glasses. Woo, we are cute. Uh, after youngest sisters bat batted her eyelashes and flashed her dimple, Dad announced that we had two minutes to get our suits on. He was leaving without us. We looked under our beds or behind the radiators for our suits. We put them on, what, still wet from last night's run under the sprinkler, and maybe stained from drippings by Dairy Queen cones. We raced out to the car, smelling a bit musty, and right from the heat and calling out at key positions in our big white Oldsmobile. I liked lying across the backseat window ledge so I could watch the world roll by in reverse. Piled up in the car, sticking to the vinyl seats or sprawled out on the ledge, we were ready to roll out. Dad would emerge out the back door, humming a tune with a cool between his teeth. He had a passion, passionate love of menthols, colorful language, and his daughters. He had many sayings, but some would be politically incorrect today, or it's too expletive to feel to print. I was fascinated with his skill of using the simple F word as a verb, a noun, and an adjective. <laughs> All in one sentence. And my friends back there know this well. <laughs> uh, he'd yell out us to roll down the censored adjective windows because do you think we're made of censored adjective money and we're using my censored adjective gas to have air conditioning? And then dad would say, hang on, my little ladies, we're off to the pool. When the exhale of smoke from the cool, he would drive away. In the 70s, we lived in a heavily Catholic neighborhood, so each family was composed of 6 to 12 children. And all the children were already lined up and down the block when we got to the pool. And Dad would tell us to have a great time, and he'd be back at 5. He never worried that we would drown if he wasn't watching us because he had paid for us to take swimming lessons every Saturday morning that winter, and we had the certificates to prove that we could swim and not drown. Also, weren't there censored adjective? Lifeguards there being paid to make sure that we weren't going to drown. And compared to the bigger families, there were only four of us. And we were four girls to boot. So we had to hold our, our place firm in our place in line and try not to faint from the incessant sun beating on our heads as we elbowed out all the kids trying to budge in line. We finally get to the gate, pay our fees, drop our towels, and run straight to the water filled with nirvana, only to be stopped dead in our tracks by a barely out of puberty 16-year-old armed with a bullhorn and lifeguard whistle telling us, walk or you're out of here. Jeez, we thought to ourselves, we hadn't become adept at our expletives <laughs> yet. We just got here. Swimming at the Highland Pool with half the population of St. Paul was not without peril. There was absolutely no shade. So if you didn't have a base tan after so many sunburns, you risked a bad burn by at least 1.30, and we just got let in at 1.00. And I don't think sunscreen had been invented yet, but even if it had been, we only used Johnson's baby oil. More, however, the chlorine was so strong that it caused your eyes to burn and become bloodshot in a matter of minutes. If you died for pennies in the deep end, you basically became blind by 3 o'clock. And when parents picked up their kids at 5, the kids had to be hand-led to the car because they had refused to open their eyes on account of the pain. And the kids looked they had a bad case of pink eye or were stoned to the bejesus. And we were sad when we heard Dad laying on the horn outside the gate and yelling, ladies, it's time. So with bloodshot eyes, we left feeling exhausted, but cool and happy as hell after our day at the pool. Thank you. Uh, next up, we have Carla Hagen. 
Carla Hagen's debut novel, Hand Me Down My Walking Cane, won the Midwest Independent Publishers Association Award for Best Historical Fiction and Best Literary Fiction. Her work has appeared in numerous journals and anthologies. She lives with her husband in St. Paul. Please welcome Carla. Hi there, thank you all for coming out tonight. This is really a wonderful venue. I'm so happy we're reading outside. And Amy, I just have to tell you, I think that our father's little mine was a little bit older than you. Must have been related because um, I could reel off a whole bunch of his wonderfully colorful language, but probably not everybody would like it, so. Anyway, one of the things he used to say, actually, without even invoking the F word, which was absolutely his favorite noun, adjective, and verb, was Jesus jumping Christ, and I was this, this vision of Christ on a pogo stick. Anyway, um, so my selection is called Morels, and I think it's really about place, which I was thinking before I came over tonight, St. Paul for me is many things, but it really is about place. I'm not, I didn't grow up in St. Paul. I grew up on the Canadian border, Minnesota, and I've lived here since 92, the end of 92. So I'd lived in a lot of other places first, in Mexico City, in my little hamlet up on the border, different places. Um, but I really fell in love with St. Paul, with potholes, the funky cathedral, the old gangster haunts, all of it. Anyway, I'll read you my piece, Morels. <clears throat> the Morels appeared one May morning in 1993 beneath the stand of spindly poplar in our yard on Ashland Avenue the first spring in our first house. I had never seen morels outside of the Lake of the Woods County Forest where I grew up. I was already falling as hard in love with the double lot as I was with a graceful, funky Victorian. There were raspberry bushes and yellow, white, lilac, and purple violets, but the morels seemed like a mistake. How could they simply sprout here with no peat bog, no tamaracks, no star-clotted sky? And what if they weren't real morels, but the false kind that would send me to an early, foolish death? My mother, the only person I'd ever relied on for mushroom identification, had just been rushed down from the northern border to United Hospital. Everybody hear me okay? All right. Where she was recovering from surgery to remove dangerous blood clots. I carefully plucked the alleged morals and placed them in a paper bag. Down the hill at United, my mother was sitting up in bed drinking coffee. Look what I found in our yard, Mom. I spilled the fragrant brown mushrooms onto the white hospital linens. Morels, she said, all the way down here. Are you sure? Of course, she said, laughing. Fry them up fast while they're fresh. It was a sign. My mother would heal. We had chosen the right house. We sauteed the morels in butter and ate them that night. Thank you. Uh, next up is Isadora Gruyere. Uh, Isadora Gruyere is a writer and photographer living in St. Paul. She believes in cartography and beekeepers, but has little need for maps or honey. She frequently reads her work at the Barbaric Yop, and she is a past participant of the Loft Mentor series. Please welcome Isadora. <laughs> um, I always like the first thing I say into a microphone is, can everybody hear me? You in the back? Perfect. If that changes, just fire something up into the air. Great. <laughs> uh, so I am primarily a poet, and these readings are such a great opportunity for poets to be able to really showcase their work along with prose writers. So it's really exciting for me to be here. Um, so I'm just going to jump in then. 
My poem is on page 233 if you're reading along in the book. Uh, I'm going to read two. I'm going to read the selected poem and then its companion piece as well tonight. Doomsday Heart. You planted your doomsday heart in the soil long enough to grow pumpkins, to grow towering coniferous trees, to grow an albatross, winged and perfect, like the terrible angels who neglected your bedroom window. Most days, you laid naked face down in the fields, hands trembling as the yellow manure chemical clouds rolled in with the afternoon. And we didn't know how to introduce you to dinner guests. Your fingernails overgrown, your hair tangled with bramble. You said the well was poisoned. You said everything tasted like dust. You said the cities on the horizon had been burning for days, that the rain clouds held particulates and human remains. At sunset, you sat on the porch laughing at the windmills for spinning their arms. You refused ice cream sundaes. You rejected invitations to the drive-in, claiming that our thinning hair, our bleeding bellies, and our graying lips were not proper companions for the world alive in your memories. Advanced Shapes. Kindergarten, Valentine's Day. She pinned a felt heart over her chest. Your heart is where you feel love, which is why it's red, teacher explained. This was the first lie she remembered. Her heart was neon blue squiggles. In her chest, she felt lightning and hot air balloons the shape of penguins eating ice cream at the zoo. When she pledged allegiance to the flag, she silently wished for birthday cake with dinner and more dollies for her unmade bed. Every autumn, Mama took her to the North Lake. While her sisters watched MTV, she collected agates along the shore, stuffing her pockets with shiny, clanking pebbles, the shape of sand in reverse. She threw each one back into the water, knowing the rocks never meant to leave such loveliness behind. She doesn't know how, <laughs> she doesn't know which books to keep on the shelf or how many towels to keep in her bathroom. The cat licks frost from the window panes, leaving behind a patch of melt where his rough tongue chose to make the spring. Out in the street, the neighborhood boys shoveled deep until metal sparks the sidewalk, carving out an escape route in the same shape as last year's trenches, already familiar and still unexpected. Thank you. Uh, next up, we have Janet Lunder Hannafin. Janet grew up on a South Dakota farm, transplanted, her, transplanted herself to St. Paul for college, and grew deep roots. Her writing has appeared in local and metro-wide publications. She and her husband have two children of five grandchildren, all above average, and enjoy the companionship of two very fine cats. Please welcome Janet. 
I can say that little did I know when all this really, really happened that it ever occurred to me that I would confess it, write about it, and get paid for it. So this is the tiger and the bell tower. I had my chance and I blew it more than once. So I never got to be a real co-ed. I fell in love with McAllister College the first time I saw those ivy-decked brick buildings. If you came from a little South Dakota farm town, St. Paul was London, Paris, Mecca, and realistically about as far away as I could hope to get. In the fall of 1961, our senior high school class went on a field trip to Minneapolis, traveling on two rickety former Greyhound buses owned by our Lutheran boarding school. One was rumored to have no brakes. The other added extra seating by putting a row of ancient folding chairs down the aisle for stragglers who didn't board in time to get a real seat. Mr. Peterson, our bus driver, math teacher, principal, knew that I had an interest in McAllister and had pretty decent grades. Followed by a Chevy station wagon driven by two female chaperones who couldn't stand the din on the group transport, Mr. Peterson led the unlikely caravan through the pre-I-94 city streets, across the mighty Mississippi and along Summit Avenue until we got to the campus. And then back and forth through the campus, down Snelling, right on Grand, left on McAllister Street, right on Lincoln, right on Cambridge, back to Grand, and then south on Snelling, past the Student Union, and what I would later learn were the men's dorms, the gym and the field house. Mr. Peterson made one of the boys give up his front row window seat for the excursion so that I could see everything. My mind was made up, McAllister or die. The stars aligned, and I do not say that lightly. My mother's best friend ever since their kindergarten days just happened to be the dean of women. So, though I was heading into the abyss, my mom had a direct line to in loco parentis. I learned, even before coming to McAllister, that to be an official co-ed, a college girl had to be kissed by an upperclassman under the bell tower in front of the library. Then, to announce the deed, the fellow would ring the bell. I couldn't wait to write my high school friends about the experience I was sure would happen soon. But during freshman week, I learned a second bit of lore from the sophomore girls who lived on our floor. A man-eating tiger had starved to death on the McAllister campus. Great. A sophomore boy invited me to the homecoming dance, and the kiss could have happened that night, but there was a line at the bell tower, and the darn bell rang and rang. As a freshman, I had to be in the dorm by midnight or get campused, a punishment that would keep me locked up in my dorm for three or four weekends. The sophomore wasn't worth that, and my dream of a romantic induction to co-edhood was put on hold. Late one winter evening or afternoon, I was trudging back to the dorm from English class held in the old Quonset huts that would later be replaced a couple of years later by the Janet Wallace Fine Arts Center when a voice beside me said, you're heading to the grill for a cup of coffee, right? Really? There was, I can only call him, a college man 
looking at me and smiling. Uh, yeah? He fell into step beside me. I knew what he said. I am too. On the short walk to the grill, he told me his name, Bruce, and that he was a senior majoring in economics. I must have told him it was my dad's birthday because he informed me that we would have cake, and he ordered two black coffees and a chocolate cupcake, which we shared. Then he said he'd walk me back to my dorm, but he steered me out of my way on a bitterly cold afternoon toward the bell tower. Are you a co-ed, he asked. No. Well then, he was already reaching for the rope. But dang, it was light out, and there were people everywhere, and my history professor was coming out of the library. I don't think so, I said. He smiled, and it was a beautiful, friendly smile that I would have loved to try on. Sure? Yeah. He walked me to my dorm. Tell your dad happy birthday, he said. Thanks for the coffee. I know where you live. I'll see you around. But he never did. By spring, I was watching much more carefully for that man-eating tiger, whom I suspected was pretty hungry, than for college men. And I never did become a co-ed. Thank you. Next up, we have David Mendez. Born in Minneapolis and growing up on St. Paul's west side, David Mendez's writing focuses on his experience as a third generation Chicano in Minnesota. He looks to the blue collar roots of his community. He hopes that his work will inspire others to find their voice and share a story. Please welcome David. I thank you again for doing this. This is a uh, second time doing this kind of reading. It's a beautiful experience to always hear storytellers and stuff, and that's really what the city is about. It's an it's a intercollage of storytellers and poets and art and everything of nature. So it's, you know, the city is unique in its own sense. Um, so this first piece, I've I got two poems to perform for you. Uh, the first one's on page 167. And uh, I come from the west side of St. Paul, which is just across the river from over here. And it's, you know, being grown up in a very dominant Mexican-American community, um, you know, it's kind of a unique experience, you know, and the and funny thing is every time I leave the state and I tell where I'm from, no one believes me. That no one believes I'm from St. Paul, A, and then no one believes there's other people in St. Paul. Yes, <laughs> there's communities in St. Paul. There is. And so, um, and now that we're hitting the summertime, I'm glad we're outside, you know, it's, it's kind of that temperature now. We're getting that thickness, we're getting that heat, and, you know, and for us, uh, especially in my community, we look out for what we'll call the paletero man. He's an ice cream vendor. And especially particularly this, these ones, this place I'm talking about is about a group of them that like to sit outside of our church, our uh, Guadalupe Church on the west side on Conquer Street. So this poem is called Apalateros Mass. A family of palateros stand in silent vigil in the parking lot of church. Each cart their own ofrenda or altar decorated with faces of cartoons, video game characters, and ice cream versions of homemade desserts. Maybe today the Vigencita will grant the prayers for a warm day. Here they have their own misas, their mass, awaiting the congregation to go in peace. Sure, they stand for the pointing hands of Sunday preschoolers dragging their parents and the giggling of siblings using the building entrance as their own game board. Here they call to the young men 
Hey, get something cool for this hot day. To the couples holding hands, how about something sweet for your sweetie? There's no age or status, just a sales pitch to nostalgia. For your new home may be right here, and so are we. They only come for the Spanish services, I notice, for the temperature is just right. But cash is universal in all lenguas. There is flavor for everyone here. Before the lot is empty, they leave with letter carts and full of pockets. They carry her Sunday blessing. Uh, I was born in Minneapolis, but I was just born there. That's the, that's the most I can claim for that city. <laughs> um, but I, I grew up and was raised here. Um, my father you know, grew up here, and then my mother immigrated up here. And so St. Paul's always been home. And so, but you know, nowadays, you know, with everyone trying to gain ground and trying to push their, you know, elbows around, you know, especially lately, we've been kind of been the foreshadow of the other city, you know, and it's like, I, you know, I gotta tell people sometimes, like, I am from here, and there's something here, you know, and sometimes, you know, we don't get that kind of love, especially for us, you know, that kind of are still trying to find a path and, um, and a voice uh, in this kind of, in the state and in the city. You know, I mean, I see protests and marches. I'm like, uh, you know, the capital's over here, right? Uh, so, so we just, this, this is called uh, Ain't No Love for My Part of Town. On my side of the river, they tried to make a space for the affluent. Even though we had a fight with our own, we still won. On my side of the river, heaven knows how I've seen enough of those brown faces and fake smiles that claim to fight for us. On this side of the river, there were neighborhoods decimated for infrastructural gain for your convenience. On my side of the river, we're like that water. We curve and sway with the current glimmering to the sun. On my side of the river, we are unknown, a display of the past, a byproduct of rhetoric, a wasteland of political causes. On my side of the river, we also live under a militarized state, under the weight of security cameras, under the weight of marble and copper domes. On my side of the river, the city was built with blood money, bandaged by broken treaties and under constant construction. On my side of the river, we are not just out of touch. We are just a tad bit out of reach, but movements are continually born. On my side of the river, we will not matter. We are just bodies to fill in societal gaps. On my side of the river, we are invisible, but it's better this way, so the space can be us and for us alone. On my side of the river, we'll never be the hip, trendy activists dividing ourselves under the false narrative that we are breaking walls. On my side of the river, we are burial mounds of a disrespected people, refugees of closed factories and flooded shacks. On this side of the river, we are our own. We are among many. We belong to this valley. Uh, before I introduce the last reader, I just want to give a big thanks to uh, Golden's Deli for having us here tonight um, and letting us uh, uh, re read outside in their patio. I think this is fantastic. So thank you guys for having us. Uh, special thanks for uh, Nigel for uh, putting the sound together and making sure everyone can hear in the back. Um, and then I also want to thank uh, Kimberly, the uh, director of the Almanac, for, um, well, the Almanac. <laughs> uh, 
Um, I always love, love, love the reading series. I'm a reading series guy myself, but the Almanac, the, uh, uh, the book, uh, uh, the maps, uh, the impressions, every, everything that comes out of the Almanac is just, um, uh, it's, it's so literary and it's, it's, it's so communal that it's, it's just, um, ever since I've been uh, aware of this and part of this, it's just really been a, uh, uh, you know, symbol of, 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 of the literary community in, uh, in St. Paul and a, and a symbol of, of St. Paul itself. And uh, uh, I always enjoy it. I'm, I'm very thankful to be a part of it. So uh, we have one reader left for tonight, and that is Sean McLaughlin. Uh, Sean, MFA Columbia, is a lower town artist and writer who journals his devotion to myth and the common object in intimate drawings, large-scale paintings, amulets, essays, and short stories. He has shown with John Cage, Laurie Anderson, Meredith Monk, Cindy Sherman, Richard Serra, Paul Rotterdam, and Sue Coe. Please welcome Sean. In the old world, the world of song, every heart held a mountain of amber. To its base, everything was born. Along its slope, everything increased. Lift this up. Okay. This is my first reading, so you'll have to forgive me. Uh, so is this? There, good. So we'll start again, and thank you for your indulgence. In the old world, the world of song, every heart held a mountain of amber. To its base, everything was born. Along its slope, everything increased until midpoint, midway, at the highest tip beneath the sun, everything was granted a vision, a gift of illumination and wisdom, so that on the slope, the other slope of the mountain, as one descended, at last they understood such a passage. This is a small story about that slope of passage, of trying to carry a vision as one tumbles down the mountain. And the name of the story in the book is uh, St. Paul's City Words. There are no words for a city. A city is phrases. It is broken sentences. It is paragraph upon paragraph that still leaves things unsaid. Yet it is the world and the word that organizes how we see a city, or hold it, or love it. My words to my city are soft and small. They are little words that are often heard in the words of others, overheard in a small park, thrown into the night wind that blows up from the river when I say I love them, the scented wind and the moving water. I am sorry that such words are not the words of dogs or the birds that nest on the rooftops opposite my splendid little room, or even the thin gray sparrow trees that bless the crumpled parking lot. When I speak of city words, I mean the words we each hold and carry. I would love to be a dog, or to fly, or for a few short years to feel the seasons in my roots, trunk, and branches before the city decides to move or change me. I spend a great deal of time listening to those worlds of words as well. But even as they enrich me, they are not the words I ultimately carry. I carry human words, trying to say what we are, 
where and how we live in a human way, holding my words to myself like a gleaner does as they gather wheat, examining each of them as a poor person does when they pick over what they have worked so hard to have, when they are hungry, when they are trying to rise above and upward in our human world. Yet even with so much labor, my city words are still small, not as large as a TPT building, not as long as the lovely still clean trains that move past me to sleep in their night station, not as loud as a state stadium in those raucous hours before a home game. I suppose my words are smaller, shorter, quieter, because my city words are heart words, little words so basic they don't need much added them to make it better. I find love in this city. I find love, faith, and humor in its streets and sidewalks, in its markets and shops, in its set-aside bus stops. Love and renewal, chance and change, insight and introspection, act and reaction. These are but a part of my city words, and holding them, I am brought to gratitude. One among it all, one held in the many, one holding the many to oneself, here in a perfect place. In a perfect place where I tell the river at night that I have not forgotten her during my day. Where I tell the wind a hundred secrets that I hope turn into butterflies. Where I tell my little sparrow trees that they have my permission to grow as deep as they can in the muddled soil of my soul when they find they are falling from the harsh salts that streak the winter sidewalks. If I say such things to them, should I then not speak out and tell my whole city that I love her, the bricks, wood, and glass? Should I then not tell the people of this roundabout, bumbling town, young, old, and in-between, that I love them as well? Should I not speak out in the middle of the marketplace and use my human language to say that here I found a wealth of simple city words that bring one to love, to gladness, and to discovery. Each city word helping me to hold all within my growing heart. Each city word opening me up to another kind of wonder. Thank you. Well, thank you all for coming out tonight. I really appreciate you guys coming out tonight. It was great to have you. Uh, before we go, I just want to give one big final thanks to all the readers who came tonight and uh, shared their stories and voices with us tonight. I really appreciate it. Uh, my name is David Stein, and it's been my pleasure to be your host. Uh, thank you, and have a great evening. To hear more stories, learn more about Storymobile, and to find out where we'll be pedaling off to next, visit storymobile.org.